Welcome to Leadership Web, a podcast series from the University of Arkansas that exposes listeners to a wide range of perspectives on leadership. Through interviews with current leaders, Leadership Web strives to provide tools for you to either begin building your own or continue improving your existing leadership framework. We believe that there is no one single path to successful leadership, but that we can all learn from each other on our own leadership journeys. Today we are joined by Mike Duke, former Chief Executive Officer of Walmart. His top five values are integrity, development, caring, commitment, and innovation. I'm John White, and with me is uh, John English, Dean of the College of Engineering at the University, and we're very pleased to have as our guest today, uh, Mike Duke. We're developing this series of interviews based on a value-based leadership. And so one of the things that we've asked each of our, our guests is to share with us their values. And I was very pleased to see yours. In fact, you had as your first value, you said integrity and trust. And it's interesting in the the leadership course that you've participated in and I've done now for, I guess, 10 years, all of the leaders who've come, when I would ask them about values, the first thing they say is integrity. It's easy to say integrity. It's not so easy to live integrity. And I would think that it's very difficult when you are interviewing someone for a position to accurately assess integrity I'd like for you to just share with us a bit about why you feel so strongly about integrity and are there examples in your life involving integrity that you might want to share with the students who will be listening to this. I would love to, Dr. White, and it's a great honor to be visiting with you and Dr. English today and and even to be speaking here and uh, and having this little discussion about, about values and leadership. Integrity, I think, is the foundation that all other characteristics get built on. And if there's no solid foundation, then it's not going to be possible for a leader to build on top of it. And that's why integrity is the most important value or characteristic of leadership. And uh, what you said is so accurate that uh, most people can say integrity and they maybe can even give an elaborate discussion or a great speech about integrity but people watch what you do much more than what you say. And I've always noticed in leadership that leaders that can stand up and talk about something, it's a nice thing to be able to do. But as soon as that meeting is over and they're through talking, what the people that work under that leader are watching is what does the leader do? Not only what do they say, but what do they do? How do they live out integrity? I think I've been very blessed over the years to have leaders that were able to walk their talk in this topic of integrity. So I, I had the benefit of many examples of leaders from my early days until I retired from Walmart mm-hmm. to see leaders demonstrate by their actions what the word integrity really means. In my early days of starting off in retailing, I hadn't been with this company in Atlanta. It was Richway Discount mm-hmm. Stores, and I had a boss named John Whitenauer. I just saw John uh, three days ago. He's now in his 90s, and he's still 
uh, is a man of integrity, just like he was uh, in 1972 when I started working in the retail business, reporting directly to him. And I had an example watching him one day when it involved a purchase of petroleum for our gas stations. Back then, we had a short supply. Our, we were basically out of fuel at our gas stations. We had a supplier call him up on the phone. I happened to be listening in in the office. The supplier offered to ship in the next day three or 400,000 gallons of fuel for our petroleum stations. And it was a great offer, of course. But I could tell this supplier, it tied to the offer to ship was a request for a personal gift. I think something as simple as a tennis racket. Oh my. And as a trade-off for doing this favor for John Whitenauer and our chain of stores. Well, I watched Mr. Whitenauer immediately turn the table on this supplier and explain to him that we didn't want his petroleum. We don't need gasoline that bad. And he even told the supplier on the phone to contact his CEO and have his CEO at his petroleum company call John Whitenauer within one hour and explain how they're going to change their ethics and standards of how they distribute gasoline in the future. And it was a very, very clear message back then about the right way to do business and not being tempted to compromise or trade off on policies. Because a company can say that we don't accept gifts, and they can say that in a speech. But when does a leader role model it? And I happen to see that role model. And I that was early in my career, but throughout my 40 plus years of working in retailing, I had the benefit of many others. And the last 20 or so years being in Walmart and seeing the kind of foundation that Sam Walton built with his own personal integrity and the way that Sam not only talked, but the way that Sam Walton walked the talk at Walmart and so many, many great models of leadership of integrity that Sam Walton created at Walmart. So I happen to be the beneficiary of some great role models. It's interesting that uh, in the book, Leading with Integrity by Alan Culp and Peter Ray, in there they say that trust, because you linked integrity and trust, they said trust is the guiding principle of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. And one of the others on your list of values was caring and servant that servant leadership is very important to you. In that very same book, Leading with Integrity, they point out that care comes from the Latin word cura, which means concern, attention, supervision. And they also said that it's a synonym for love. Mm -hmm. And so servant leadership seems to be a big value for you. Mm -hmm. How would you characterize the way that your leadership has evolved over time, because I suspect even when you graduated from Georgia Tech at that time, servant leadership wasn't your approach to leadership, mm -hmm. but I suspect that it has changed as you've changed. And I wonder if you would just share the maturation process you've gone through to bring you to a point where caring, loving people, serving people is one of your core values. Well, you are so right. When I came out of Georgia Tech with my engineering degree, my first focus when I started my first job was basically numbers driven. And I was very results oriented and really wanted to track my performance and keep score. 
And frankly, I did not appreciate as much how to get the results through people. And that I had to learn. I learned from that first boss. I mentioned John Whitenauer, but also started to watch over time, you might say, through my own trial and error and watching how what creates success and how does a leader really uh, treat people and what comes from that. I think there was a a maturing process of me as a person. By that time, I was married. Uh, we had three small children. So I was starting to learn how to grow up as an adult, a father, a husband, and also in the workplace and what that meant as I, as I moved through my first few jobs. Uh, over the first 10 years of my working career in retailing, I think I had a number of different bosses then. And I started to observe leaders and I just started to look at those that created success compared to those that had maybe short-term success, but not long-term success. And it soon became evident that those that really care and those that really demonstrate servant leadership are going to create the long-term success that's really best in business and best for people. I guess also I saw sincerity and there can be servant leaders who go through the motions of serving other people, but they still may not have the heart, the caring. And I started to also see in my own maturing process that caring and servant leadership go hand in hand and that you can't go through the mechanics of being a servant leader without caring. And that the caring leader, the one who really loves people, ends up being the one that is the real servant leader because they do it out of sincere approach. I could also see those leaders that didn't care. And I even remember talking with my son as he started his career. He had a leader one time who was in, in that mode. And I told Devin, our son, how fortunate he was. I said, because sometimes you learn a lot from poor leaders by learning what not to do. And he had that opportunity early in his career, as most of us have had. So. I do think caring for people, sincerely caring for people, and uh, servant leadership go hand in hand. And I probably, uh, it, it took me 10 to 15 years before I kind of realized that. But I wouldn't say that I ever arrived to a fully satisfactory state of servant leadership. I always felt like I could do more. I could think of additional things. I had examples even at Walmart over the years that I looked at afterwards and thought, I could have done more. I could have helped that person more. And it was just one of those challenges, but also think that itself is a healthy humility to say that we always could be better at being better servant leaders. Well, in fact, that's one of the things that uh, the three of us here have in common. And that is, it's the curse of the industrial engineering gene which right. is the continuous improvement. There's right. always a better way. Right. We can never be satisfied. It's, uh, we got inoculated with that, didn't we, right. Mike? One of my good Georgia Tech IE professors many, many years ago started off a class one day by saying, the best method has never been found and never will be found. Mm -hmm. And being a young student, you know, I thought, I'm going to solve. And, you know, there is a best way, a yeah. best solution. And I think he, his point was there's always a better solution. And that's been true of my leadership is I always felt like I could be a better leader every day than I was the day before. Yeah. 
Well, you mentioned caring, and I think it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt who's credited with saying, people will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's right. It's interesting that in the leadership class this fall, the last guest we had was Judith McKenna. And she was very complimentary of you, Mike, and that she said that it was obvious that you cared and that you were so approachable. And you did a lot there at Walmart when you were CEO and even before, and you mentioned that one of your, your values is developing people. There's been a tremendous increase in the number of women in particular who've moved into senior leadership positions. And it happened on your watch. And I know that you don't take credit for anything that happened at Walmart because it's strictly a team effort. But I'm curious because if at the top, the tone at the top is not supportive of something, it's very difficult to affect change, particularly with respect to some aspects of culture in an organization. As you were developing people, how were you able to get the organization to embrace Let's expand opportunities for people, regardless of gender, regardless of race, ethnicity, and other things. How'd you do that? Well, I first would go back to Sam Walton. And the very, very first basic belief or value at Walmart that goes back many, many years, long before I joined the company in 1995, goes back to Sam's creation in the 1970s and 80s. And the basic beliefs, number one, was respecting every individual. And... Sam, I watched video of him talking about showing respect for every individual. And he didn't ever line out who not to show respect for, who not to invest in, who not to develop. It was really about developing every person to their fullest potential. And so it was easy at Walmart, in my opinion, to, to say that we're going to live out this basic belief of showing respect and developing people which means all people, and it means men, women, and regardless of anything about background or other uh, preferences or country and all of that, and saying, if this person is an associate of Walmart, let's invest in them and develop them to the fullest potential. And I think leaders who, if they, for example, if they leave out women or don't put as much emphasis on women, they're probably ignoring half of their workforce half of their associate base. It's a bad business decision and it's bad from a people caring standpoint not to care and to want to develop people to their fullest potential. And so I think at Walmart, because of the foundation of Walmart, I did not find it difficult at all to get buy-in and to get understanding about the, the focus on development of women because we had so many talented women available to take on big jobs. I also had one, I did have one male executive come to me one day. He closed the door in the office and he wanted to understand more about it. And I could tell he was not bought in. <laughs> and so I, to this particular executive, I, I said, you know, first of all, I said, creating more opportunities for women is great for you. And I said, this is not a zero sum outcome. If we create more opportunities for women, then we build a better company. And if we build a better company, there are more opportunities for men and women. And I said, so let's go visit the Supercenter. And let's talk about it at the front checkouts. And 
we stood at the front of the store at the checkouts and we started, I said, look at the customers coming through the lines. I said, isn't it great to stand here? I said, I have more fun standing in front of a busy super center on a busy day watching our customers coming through because they're writing out our paychecks right there. And I said, let's do a quick sampling. Uh, how many do you see there are men compared to women? And in that sampling, he said, hmm, about probably 20 or 30 percent are men. And I said, yeah. And I said, even those 20 or 30 percent, most of their buying decisions were made by their spouse or their wife or someone else. And I said, so understand that developing women from a customer viewpoint is also it's the right thing to do from a people standpoint, but it's also good business. And I said, do you think I've satisfactorily answered your question? He said, Mike, you've answered it really, really well. He said, I'm going to do everything I can to support this initiative. Yeah, I ran into some of the same things when I was chancellor at the university in terms of trying to increase diversity. But John Lewis, who was then the president of Bank of Fayetteville, said, John, I lived in Texas for a while. And he said, there's a difference in the Texas mentality and the Arkansas mentality. There's an abundance mentality in Texas, and there's a scarcity mentality within Arkansas. And in Arkansas, people think if someone gets a bigger slice of the pie, you're going to get a smaller slice of the pie. Whereas in Texas, the whole attitude is let's make the pie bigger. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's what you were mm -hmm. saying to that executive. Right. Let's make the pie bigger. Mm -hmm. And then everyone is going to be able to participate. And not only will you get the same slice that you had before is going to be actually be a bigger slice for mm -hmm. you. So that that was a great way that you handled that. I've, I've noticed that one of the other values that you indicated was being committed and passionate. Mm -hmm. If you ever had a situation in which you had difficulty getting other people to be passionate about it, and if so, how do you generate passion and commitment mm -hmm. within those in your organization where you sense that they don't have the level of passion and commitment that you would like. How do you sure. do that? Well, of course, that's part of the role of the leader is trying to develop that, uh, that passion. And usually it means that some better understanding of the business and the desired outcome and why, what is the mission of the organization. At Walmart, I found it easy to develop this passion this level of commitment because people are really committed to the mission of Walmart. Sam Walton said it so well that he created the company because he wanted to help people all over the world to live a better life and to do that by saving money. And that's a pretty simple focused purpose of why Sam Walton created the company Walmart. And that's easy to get behind of helping people live a better life all over the world and helping them save money to do that. Now, I think understanding purpose and values helps to lead to this, this area of passion. But I will admit, there I can think back to some occurrences where I could not develop that in certain leaders. And it meant that that person could self-select then to move to somewhere else. And not everyone belongs in the retail business. Not everyone would necessarily believe in that uh, particular purpose of Walmart. Not everyone that I ran into working at Walmart believed in the culture and the values of the company. Mm -hmm. My encouragement then 
and sometimes, of course, I did this more directly, not just through encouragement, is I helped them uh, free up their future from Walmart so they could go find somewhere that they could be passionate. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it, Mike. I suspect, though, that how many how many associates did you have reporting to you when you were CEO? When I was CEO, we were just a little over $2 million. It's more than that now. Yeah, my goodness, though, and there are $2 million scattered all over the world. Right. How did you get your message through the organization? I had difficulty with an organization just the size of the University of Arkansas to, for my message to reach the, all levels of the organization. How do you communicate that throughout the organization? Well, it certainly is a challenge, and it's one of the great challenges of leadership. And, but it starts with those that report directly to the leader. My most important role would have been the, say, nine or ten direct reports that I had direct responsibility for their development, their opportunities, their growth, their own passion, and and how they lead in their you know, respective areas of responsibility. So that's where I would put the most time, would be helping those that would have reported directly to me to help them and to be the servant leader to them, to role model for them. But then also part of that is creating in them an expectation about who they report to them. And probably each of them had eight or 10 direct reports. And so my support of them was to help them develop their leaders. And I always knew their leaders very, very well. And so it becomes a, um, you might say a multiplication factor as we go through the organization. And then it gets to the most important job of all, I think, in this particular area, and that's the local store manager. Walmart has a little over 11,000 stores. Maybe it's over 12,000. Now it's a a little over 11,000, I think, when I was still full-time there. And every one of those store managers has to have the responsibility where he or she reflects the values and the purpose of the company and and, uh, demonstrates that for the people at the local level. And I think I've always said that's still the most important job at Walmart is that local leader developing the associates that meet face-to-face with customers. In today's digital world, that also takes place in our e-commerce operations. And that is even more challenging because it's not as much face-to-face as at the local store. But it is a factor of of just applying these principles uh, throughout the organization and being a servant leader, particularly to the people that report directly to you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm I'm curious on something, Mike. Sitting at this table, we all three have the same source of the way we point north. Right. And, uh, you know, you take two million people. Mm -hmm. You know, we're living in a culture where morals are defined by who they are, how they've grown up. I, I can't even imagine with that number of people... And, and, you know, integrity seen by one may be different than another. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think there's <clears throat> constancy of purposes that you can yeah. drill down. And so I'm just curious, kind of getting into the details, how you mm-hmm. run an organization, how do you basically, it's kind of building on what John's mm-hmm. asking, dig down deep and get people, like John Jim Collins says, you know, you, you cast a vision everybody buys into. You don't mm-hmm. need a bunch of bureaucracy mm-hmm. and rules. So you don't browbeat That's to right. get people to do things. I'm curious, you know, Programmatically, how mm-hmm. do you how do you kind of get people to point the same way sure. so they line up with these mm-hmm. core values 
knowing good and well the compass may point a different direction. Yeah, exactly. We, I think it's a really, really uh, good question for discussion that you brought up, John, because again, you can have words, but words may not mean much. Mm -hmm. It's more about what are the actions and what's really taking place. The one process that I use and I've discussed with John in the leadership class would be diagonal communication so that a leader can know not only what's happening with the leader's direct reports, but what's happening throughout the broad organization. So if you, if you picture an organization like Walmart, I would have people that I trusted who trusted me also that I could talk to at every level. And so I had store managers that I could call on the phone and ask them about the organization and how it's feeling, what's, what's the messages that are coming out from Bentonville, Arkansas to the field organization. I had people in a merchandising level that would be right on the front line that could tell me about what's going on in merchandising. And so I, I do think a leader, and I think this, and this, I was very transparent about it with the whole organization. And so that there's, it's not me going around other leaders. It's just me as a leader wanting to know what the real, real story is out in the, in the organization worldwide. What I always found to really convey from the top down to the store level and, and all throughout the organization, it's so much more important to use examples and teachings of ethics than just the general terminology. So Doug McMillan just did a fantastic job. At one meeting, he and I were in China. I think at the time, Doug was running international, and I was the CEO at the time. And Doug was up in front of many... Uh, many in our Chinese organization there in our headquarters office giving a, a story of integrity. And Doug used a few words describing the general nature of integrity, but then he used specific examples in China that everyone could completely understand. And it, that even the translators that were translating his good English would have no misunderstanding about integrity in the way that Doug communicated that to the organization. So I do think practical storytelling examples in all that we do is the best way to try to communicate. But then like any uh, scientific process, you need to check the results. And I would use uh, my communication, diagonal communication with store managers and others throughout the organization to kind of as a process check to see how's it working. Trust, but verify. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I remember you talked about calling store manager. It was about this time of year, but I think it was actually on December 23rd. You came home one evening and there was a phone message for you from someone, which I found when you shared this story with me that amazing that here you are at uh, Walmart, the responsibility you had and yet people could call you and you went in and would you just share with John? I, I, I'd love for him to hear this story about what happened about Christmas. Oh, sure. I think about this family, I think every Christmas and somehow this story comes up, but you're right, John, it was December 23rd. And I guess I probably was a little late that night getting home and I checked the message on our voicemail and sure enough, there was a customer calling, uh, I think from Florida. I could tell, um, a lady that was very upset and 
And she did leave the number, and I called her back, probably 7 or 7.30 at night, so it means it was an hour later in her time zone. And she explained to me how she had ordered online a doll for her granddaughter, and that she went to pick it up to get it to her granddaughter, and the store couldn't find it. It was one of those uh, order online and pick up in the store, and it was December 23rd, and there is no doll. I could tell that this family was not a well-to-do family because this was probably going to be the biggest or possibly only gift that this young, young girl was going to receive. So I apologized, first of all, and told the customer how much I was sorry, and but how much we wanted to try to remedy the situation. So I called the store manager immediately that night after hanging up with the customer and uh, was able to get, up to, of course, the store manager pretty quickly on the phone. And I explained the situation to the store manager, and he was obviously embarrassed and apologized to me. And I said, but it's not me to solve. It's for this this lady and the child. And I explained the story to him of Walt Disney, and Walt Disney believed in all-out recovery, that companies are going to make mistakes, but when you make a mistake with a customer, Walt Disney believed in doing an all-out recovery so that that customer would tell many, many people about how great the company was instead of telling many people how bad the company was. The store manager said he completely understood the story, and he promised me that he would do an all-out recovery. I guess the next day, that evening, 24 hours later, I had a phone call back from that grandmother, and she explained to me how the store manager had called her and that the store had sent an associate an hour drive to another Walmart store an hour away to pick up the doll, and on Christmas Eve morning had not only delivered the doll, but had contacted the family and had delivered a full Christmas feast of food, turkey, and many, many other things and other gifts for the young daughter, young granddaughter. And the tone of this this lady's story was that this was an all-out recovery that this store manager had achieved, that she would tell many, many people what a great story that Walmart was in taking care of her uh, situation. I think storytelling is a, a big part of, of leadership, and you would tell stories and share examples. Uh, but that particular one, I think, is very powerful about what an organization would do, but it also speaks volumes about what you as a leader would do. Because I have to tell you, Mike, there are people I know who would have gotten home on the 23rd and thought, oh, well, that's just too bad, and wouldn't have taken the effort that you did. And I just, I'm so glad you did. I know you are too. John, it's really interesting because that's what retailing is of people business. And my first interview in the retail business in 1972, I was told that retailing is all about people. And that I think that's why I accepted that first job. And that's why I always loved the business because it's about people. And I love those stories that, that others create by taking care of our customers or taking care of our associates. Well, and it's interesting that uh, your values, first you said integrity and trust, and you said develops people, and you said caring and servant, and committed and passionate. But the next one on here is really interesting to me, your fifth one, because when you think about the retail business, 
the word innovation doesn't necessarily come right to mind, at least mm-hmm. to me, but it did to you about inspires innovation. Mm-hmm. So how is it that in the retail business you're innovative and how do you inspire innovation in an organization, especially as large as Walmart is all over and with its history in an industry that's not necessarily associated with innovation? How do you do that? Yeah, I think uh, retailing has been probably the most innovative business that has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, long before Sam Walton or anyone else, because it's really a, a business about connecting with customers and what customer needs are. And so I remember in my early, early days working in stores that in retailing, you could do something that meets the need of a customer and you get immediate positive feedback. And that becomes a self-generating desire to be more innovative, to create product or create ideas to help customers. And so I do think it is a, it's a business of innovation. The greatest merchants in retailing are the greatest innovators, the ones that are thinking about customers and what are the needs and product to meet the need of a customer or how a product or how a service can uh, can benefit customers. So I've often thought, even in my uh, time working in supply chain, that always trying things, testing new ideas, there was no uh, solution that was all predetermined. It was usually one of, of an idea that gets tested and then it probably failed and then tested again and tried again. And it leads to an innovative solution. And, you know, actually at Walmart, there's always been innovation in every part of the business. It might be in the finance area. It might be in supply chain and logistics and distribution. And But it's particularly true at stores and in e-commerce of meeting the needs of the customer. So I think innovation is extremely critical in retailing, but probably it would be critical in every business. I just happen to be a lifelong retailer and could see the importance of innovation in a business like Walmart. Well, and anytime you're trying to be innovative, you're obviously going to have some failures. So you can't go around getting rid of people every time they fail, right? That's for sure. Now, I think that even the founder of Walmart had a pretty big failure at one point, right? Actually, Sam Walton said that he probably failed more in his leading of Walmart and creating and building Walmart than anybody ever in the history of retailing. But he used it as a way to say, don't be afraid of failure. And he had several that were well known, but the biggest one probably was the Hypermark failure. And that's a, that's interesting because Sam and Helen visited France back in the 1980s, and he saw these big, huge stores called Hypermarts, a combination of food and general merchandise, these giant stores that were like 250,000 square feet multiple entrances and he thought this would be a brilliant thing to come back and put in the United States. So we opened up four of them, a couple in Texas and a couple in Kansas and they were gigantic stores and they were called Hypermarts and they were a terrible failure. They were too big, too much inventory, the labor cost was way too high, too much uh, shrinkage of product because too many entrances and exits for product to kind of evaporate out the doors and they ended up just being a miserable failure. But Sam Walton said, you know, there's still something there. 
There's something about customers wanting to buy food and general merchandise in the same store. So he created an alternative to a hypermarket, and he called it a super center. And he opened the first one in Washington, Missouri. And it was much smaller and much more efficient. So therefore, the prices could be lower. Uh, it would require less cost to operate. And that first store led to a reinvention of Walmart and retailing with the, the building of the Supercenter format. And of course, now the Supercenter format for Walmart US represents about 90% of the business. And it's just amazing. Had Sam Walton written off the failure and decided that he wasn't going to put food in with general merchandise and never built the Supercenter, then I'm not sure Walmart would even be in existence today. So letting every failure be a learning opportunity has paid dividends, I think, uh, at Walmart. And certainly it has for you as well. For sure. I've had many failures myself over the years. Well, I remember one uh, example you shared with our class was when you were, I think you were in Virginia or Maryland, and you were trying to do something. And finally, one of your associates had to just tell you, that's what was it she said? It's interesting. It was I was in supply chain running yeah. distribution network. Okay. We put in new systems, uh, new material handling systems, and with my engineering background, I loved all the new technology we were installing, but it wasn't working. And I decided as the head of supply chain that it, I needed to just work more. And I was working 7 days a week. You know, I was out involved firsthand rolling up my sleeves, being on the front line, but it still wasn't helping. And my, the person reporting to me, responsible for that particular distribution center, she brought me into her office one day and she said, Mike, you're the boss. And she said, I respect your authority. She said, but she said, if you would empower us and give us the ability to run this distribution center the way that it had planned for it to be run, you can't do it yourself as a leader. You can't work enough hours. But if you will empower us, and spend your time on uh, communicating the goals and the desires and then giving us feedback that I believe we can get out of the ditch. And I immediately took what Gene said very seriously. I learned from it. And within a matter of weeks, she and the leadership team were empowered and they, it became a great success of how that particular distribution center ended up turning around and becoming one of the best in the whole corporation. Yeah. You know, you used a, t a word there that uh, it's interesting, boss. Uh, and one of the things that we have to deal with today is the difference in a boss and a leader. Mm -hmm. Big difference, huh? Not all bosses can be good leaders. Sure. And I wonder if all leaders can be good bosses. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think the typical definition of a boss doesn't fit very well with the current definition of a servant leader. And so I think anyone that has to use the term to describe themselves as a boss is probably not a good servant leader. And as a result, is probably not a very good boss either. And a really good leader is more likely to be a really good servant leader and is likely to be one to never use the word boss. Now, someone might use that term to just say that you're the boss, 
but the person would never ever say, I'm the boss and I'm the servant leader. That probably it wouldn't go together very well. Yeah, very good point. In fact, I wonder over your career, you've made several transitions and you came into Walmart coming in from outside. You didn't grow up in the organization like your successor did. Right. Doug, basically, his mm-hmm. career has been Walmart. As you come in from outside, how do you establish your credibility with those people in the organization who've been there for years and years? And many of them may accurately believe, I could do a better job than this yo-yo that they brought in from outside. How do you handle those transitions like that, Mike? Well, first, when I joined Walmart in 1995, I actually found it to be a reasonably welcoming organization. And I think that, again, goes back to the the foundation that Sam Walton created because Sam believed in bringing in outside ideas. I I do think that creating that environment and organization is part of that I didn't do, but I was the beneficiary of what Sam Walton created. But I will tell you that when I came in, it was clear to me that there were a number of people that knew a lot more than I did and that the experience, the wisdom, the leadership skills of others that I could benefit from. And so I spent a lot of time initially just listening and learning. I spent a lot of time just going out around the the organization of Walmart and visiting distribution centers, visiting stores, talking to long-term associates and getting getting their feedback, their advice, their suggestions. And I probably didn't have any new original idea that I brought to the company for the first year. All I did was really listen to those that had a lot of other experience and then tried to help facilitate and speed up implementation of good ideas that other people had. With that, developed some credibility and support within the organization, uh, but also developed some really good ideas that other people had that uh, that just needed facilitating. As I recall, you shared with me uh, the first day you went into the office to be the CEO, and Lee Scott came along and saw you. For those who don't know, Lee was Mike's predecessor. Would you just share that conversation that Lee had with you? The the actual CEO chair yeah. that Sam Walton and David Glass and Lee Scott, my three yeah. predecessors, had all sat in. Yes. And I'd seen the pictures of Sam sitting in that chair. And I just couldn't bring myself. Uh, by the way, Doug McMillan said he had the same problem. Yes. You know? yes. but, uh, <laughs> and it's just very difficult on that first day to go around and sit behind that side of the desk and look at it from that perspective, knowing the history of of Sam and David and Lee sitting in that chair. And so I still sat on the other side of the chair of the desk. Oh, you sat on the other side. And then Lee came in and saw me and he said, you know what? He said, you're going to have to figure out a way to get over there. And he said, the company needs you as the CEO. And he said, I'm not going back there anymore. So, and, uh, so I finally brought myself to realize that for the company benefit, I needed to be in the CEO chair and uh, decided to put myself around. Well, it's certainly the case that as you were a, a student there at Georgia Tech, about to graduate, you could never have imagined where your career would take you. It's been a magnificent career, Mike. 
Uh, did you have it all planned out? <laughs> no, I've been blessed from the time of uh, growing up in rural Georgia and uh, with no real uh, material things, but I had all the things that were really important. I had a family that really taught love and faith and from my early growing up in a small church and a foundation that I built my life on that uh, others just contributed to so much. And then uh, Georgia Tech and my first boss there in retailing and, and then kind of stumbling along and learning from a lot of people along the way. I never ever planned the next step. I think throughout my career, I always had my primary focus on the job that I had at the time. As a matter of fact, I always had a healthy respect and fear. I always thought that I really wasn't performing very well in any job that I ever had because I always saw the upside. I think every day I felt like how much better that I could be and how much better results I could generate in the job I had and never spent much time thinking about the next job. And that was certainly true at Walmart. When I was in supply chain, I always thought how much better supply chain could be. And then when I ran uh, Walmart US or when I was leading the international business, never ever dreamed of a next job. So when the board of directors invited me to take on the CEO job, I was the one most surprised and the one most humbled to, uh, to move into that office. Well, I think that's it. You've done a great job, and we appreciate you sharing your time with us today. And I know that all of those who will listen to this will get to know you better as I've gotten to know you over the years. Uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you for joining Leadership Web today. We hope that you found insight and guidance on leadership tools from this interview. Please join Leadership Web in two weeks as we explore another leader's leadership journey. Also, follow us on Instagram or LinkedIn by searching Leadership Web.